So let's start with a sitting tonight. Um, we'll begin with um, some breath following awareness practice. This time I'm gonna um, actually uh, suggest some breath counting um, in case I think it's just a, an interesting thing to try once in a while. It may or may not work for you, um, but, um, and if you already know it's not a practice you like, just continue following the breath without counting. But if you um, are familiar with it or um, maybe just wanna give it a try, I encourage you to. Um, it can be a nice compliment to, um, practice can help sometimes um, settle awareness and, and focus the mind uh, even more than just open awareness practice. And it can be especially useful to have in your um, pocket to pull out when the mind feels especially scattered and you are looking for a way to ground yourself. Um, and uh, so we'll do some awareness, breath, breath following, breath counting, and do maybe a bit a body scan together. And then um, I have two different emails I've gotten in the past week that I wanna respond to. Actually, I'm only gonna focus on one of them, but I'm gonna um, share both emails as, um, because at some point over the next couple of weeks, I wanna address um, what both emails are asking about. So, Please get in a comfortable position for meditation practice, whatever that is for you. And before we do anything like follow the breath um, or even, you know, attend to the body in any focused way, just check in with the body in a loose way to see how the body feels overall, whether they're, you know, just even like the overall quality of the energy you have, are you tired, agitated? Whatever you may be feeling like, just take, take stock how you are. Feel the physical presence of the body, the mass of it, the pull of gravity on the various parts of your body. Take note of wherever your body is making contact with something beneath or behind it, whether it be a mat, a cushion, a seat, a sofa. What are the sensations where your body is making contact with something else? What does that feel like? And how is the mind 
What is its energy like? And your emotions. And take a moment and check out the center of your chest, the heart space, the sternum area. It's a physical part of the body that is intimately connected to your emotions and your heart. Does it feel tender, tight, open. Now, as we begin to move into the more focused awareness component of this meditation session, let's begin with some deep parasympathetic relaxation breaths. Breathing in slowly through your nose to a count of four, silently to yourself. One, two, three, four. And breathing out slowly through your slightly open mouth, extending the out breath out. Again, to a count of four. Take a few more of these deep four by four breaths, breathing in through the nose for a four count and out through your slightly open mouth for a count of four. And then let your mouth close so that the breath is moving in and out of the nose. Let your awareness softly settle on the soft tissue in your nostrils where you can feel air entering and exiting the body. Just feel the sensations of the breath in the nose. You don't need to have a laser-like focus. It's not feeling the breath to the exclusion of everything else. She's using the breath as an anchor. And of course, your mind and awareness will be pulled by thoughts or other sensations in and outside of the body, and that's okay. Feel awareness moving here and there, but just gently, each time you notice it pulled elsewhere, Come back to the anchor of the breath.
And as you stay with the breath, see if you can let your awareness of the breath become just a bit more granular, more textured, breath after breath, feeling the subtle shifts and the sensations in your nostrils, feeling how the breath feels different at the beginning of an in-breath and at the end. As you continue following the breath in this way, let your awareness expand a bit so that you can include sounds in the environment around you. Still feeling the breath, feeling the subtle textures of the breath. And yet part of your awareness is also just openly receiving whatever sounds are in the space around you. Now on each exhalation, count from one to 10, just one with each exhalation, one, and then two with the next exhalation, until you get to 10, and then return to one. And if you ever lose the count, it's okay. Just start over at one. You don't get points by making it to 10. It's just a soft extra anchor that you're using. You're following the breath at the level of sensations and using this counting to help the mind stay attentive to the breath. On the inhalations, no count. Just let the in-breath happen at its own pace. And the next out-breath, the next number. Some people like to just count like one and leave it at that. Some people like to repeat the number slowly to themselves. One, one, one. I actually do the latter, but feel free to do whatever feels natural to you. Try to make the count soft and gentle. You're not using it to tie down the awareness. 
not to narrow it. It's just another anchor to keep you sort of close to the breath, but there should be room for thoughts, sensations, perceptions. Every time the mind gets pulled away, just come back to the count and the breath and sounds, gentle, with as little force as possible. At first, when you use the count, it feels like an active thing that you're doing. You are counting. But at some point, it can start to feel like you're hearing, not saying these numbers to yourself, just hearing the numbers ring out one after another. And it's almost like they're part of the sounds and environment that you hear. Let's transition now to a, a little bit of a body scan, just a few different parts of the body. So let the count go and just keep a general background awareness of breath and sounds. But now begin bringing your awareness to different parts of the body. So let's begin with the hands, just feel the sensations in the muscles and the tissue of your hands, wherever your hands may be resting right now. What do you feel in the palms of your hands?
What about the fingers? And what sensations do you feel on the skin of your hands? How does the air of the room you're in feel on the skin of your hands? Let your awareness move now to your shoulders, to the muscles that extend from your shoulder socket up to the base of your skull. Those of you who work at desks probably have some tension here from looking at computer screens or being bent over papers or books. Just bring a soft awareness to whatever sensations you can feel in the shoulder muscles. Moving down a bit to the area between your shoulder blades in and around your shoulder blades, what do you feel? And as we explore different parts of the body in this way, remember that the point is not to change what we find. It's not to relax or to alter sensations or muscles, but just to explore just to notice how things are with a soft openness. Sometimes that kind of soft awareness can change what it finds. Sometimes tension releases, but sometimes not. Try not to have expectations or agendas. What's most important and most powerful is just being attentive to how things are, as they are. Let your awareness sink down now into the lower back. The muscles that run up and down either side of the lower spine and the muscles and tissue that radiate out from there. Can you feel in those muscles any movement associated with the breath when you inhale and your lungs expand with air? Can the muscles in the lower back sense that expansion? that movement.
who among us doesn't have some slight bit, perhaps even more, of a lower back discomfort or pain? Can you feel the discomfort there in the back with gentleness, softness? Let the sensations of discomfort or tension or whatever you may find just float there held by your soft and open, accepting awareness. Let your awareness now circle around the front side of your torso and to settle into the lower belly area. What sensations can you feel in the belly? Both associated with the breath, but also just hanging out in the belly area, maybe Sensations that feel like they have some emotional coloring to them, maybe some anxiety, some fear, maybe some anger. Just notice how the belly feels and also how the sensations in the belly change breath by breath as awareness just hangs out. Do you feel any aversion to what you're discovering in the belly? Are there sensations that you feel like you just don't want to feel? Take an interest in that aversion itself. Don't worry about the sensations so much as what does it feel like to actually feel aversion? What happens to awareness, to the mind, to your whole body, when you encounter a sensation that you just don't want to feel? It's fascinating. Just explore with curiosity what aversion itself feels like, not even worrying about what the aversion is directed at. This is a fascinating thing to explore just throughout the day. Anytime you feel aversion coming on, like I just don't want to feel this, pause and just hang out with the aversion itself.
We already checked this area out before, but please revisit the center of your chest for a bit, the breastbone area. I just feel how this part of the body feels. Just begin with the way that the breath is creating sensations in the sternum area as it moves the upper chest. Is there any holding, tension? Just notice that. Or rawness, achiness. Just say hello to whatever it's like there. No need for it to be otherwise. Now please bring your awareness to the muscles located where your upper and your lower jaw bones are connected. The muscles that we use to chew. If you notice tension or even soreness or achiness, just remember, attend to it with softness. Let whatever you find be there, touched by a soft awareness. Now let your awareness move to your tongue. And to begin, just notice how your tongue is situated at this moment in your mouth. What sensations do you feel in the tip of the tongue? the big middle meaty portion of the tongue. And how does the back end of the tongue feel where your tongue disappears down the throat? And then take a moment to feel how the throat is doing around the vocal cords, the place we swallow, 
you feel any tension there? But if you do, don't even settle for the word tension. What are the sensations themselves like beyond labels? And finally, let's check out the lips. And as we wind down this sitting, let your awareness return gently to the breath in the nose, to the sounds in the space around you. And just to the sensations of your body as a whole, sitting here, just being. Feel free to begin wiggling your fingers and toes and gradually transition from sitting to whatever position you'd like to take to listen. Okay, hi everyone. Um, so it's actually been really nice getting these emails in between classes. Um, it uh, gives me, um, I don't know, it feels nice to respond to what people are interested in hearing about rather than just really trying to come up with something like what, um, so, so if you um, have any urge to, to send an email of your own or multiple ones over time, you don't have to limit yourself to one, please do. Um, so this is an email that I received, like I think even the night after last Tuesday's class, maybe the next morning. And I thought I would spend today talking in, about this email, but actually I got another one more recently that feels to me more pressing, more urgent. Um, so, um, so I'm actually gonna talk about that one. But this person is asking about something that actually is like really big. Actually, both, both emails are very big. Um, so I'm gonna just read this one out loud. So it's kind of hovering in the air because I think I might touch on it um, to a certain extent. But, and I might speak for a minute to this email. So this person wrote, one of the things that I'm particularly interested in and would love to learn more about are scripts. Some questions that come to mind as prompts for continuing our conversation, et cetera, are, 
Where do scripts come from? How do we recognize scripts? Why are scripts so similar among different people? Are scripts just scripts? What's beneath them? How should we approach scripts, relate to them? Um, so, I mean, I think just the, the few things I'm gonna say just initially, but I, I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna save this for some other night to, to tackle head on. So I think, you know, I've been using the term scripts. I think it, it, you could substitute other types of um, words as well, like stories, narratives, pictures, identities. I think I like the idea of also pictures because um, scripts, I mean, understandably makes it sound like um, there's like a particular like thoughts that, that are, are um, shaping us or shaping our experience. And that's, I think that's to a large extent true, but I think sometimes what's even more powerful the feeding in a way, the different kind of lines that we like to get hung up on are the pictures that we have for ourselves. Um, the kind of person we would like to see ourselves as being, or we see ourselves as. And of course, I think that is actually like sort of in a way fleshed out by scripts or stories, but it's something kind of bigger and in, in, in some sort of more amorphous, you know, um, things like I'm a good person, you know, or I'm a bad person or I'm a broken person, or um, um, I'm a helper, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm good because I can help people, you know. Um, and, and it's not even those words so much as just like an image we have of ourselves. And so anyway, um, so I think, um, you know, in a lot of what we've been doing is actually just the answer to these questions. So like, where, do, like, how do we recognize them? You, you just you, you label them. You notice them. Of course, I think as I've suggested in, in different classes, like sometimes they're really hard to notice. The ones especially that really are most powerfully shaping um, your experience, your sense of yourself, um, are almost like um, the air through which we see. And um, and it's I don't know if how many of you seen the, the the movie The Matrix, but it's almost like you need to see a glitch. You know, there has to be like a glitch in the Matrix for you to kind of notice that um, that uh, oh wait wait what was that? Um, and then um, then you say oh, and then you realize there was a thought there that you didn't actually even notice until something happened that made you glitch. I think it's one of the wonderful things about other people is that when they don't feed your self-image, they can create these glitches, you know, um, and they make, and you can see that there's a picture of yourself, a script or something, a storyline that's, that's driving you that you didn't realize was there, but that this other person who refuses to go along with your story of yourself um, makes you realize is there because like you don't feel good. You, you know, something, it feels off. And so the people who upset you are sometimes the biggest gifts because if everyone confirmed your image of yourself, we'd be in trouble, you know? Um, so uh, I think one thing I'm just gonna just pause over is like, why are scripts so similar among different people? It's a really interesting question. Actually, I think it's really true. Um, um, 
there's a there's a um book that actually like Ezra and I were into like many years ago. I haven't looked at it in like over two decades, but it's like called the Enneagram. And it's a diff about different personality types. Um, and it's a little bit like the horoscope, but it's like, it's a little bit different. Anyway, take a, take a questionnaire and it kind of, I forget the number now, but it's just, um, it, it, it breaks humanity up into certain number of different personality types. And you take the questionnaire to figure out what kind of personality type you, you fit into. Now, I don't actually particularly care about having some like systemic understanding of different personality types. And I don't care if the Enneagram or any other system like that is true, but what was kind of humbling and fascinating, I think this was really the, the, the thing that was interesting. It's like, as you did the questionnaire and you sort of got typed according to the system, you start to realize like, oh my God, like I really do fall into this re relatively predictable category. <laughs> like, like, you know, um, I have exactly the kind of thoughts and desires and hangups, et cetera, that this thing was predicting that I would have, you know? Um, and, and then you start looking around and you realize, yeah, you know, there, there aren't that many different kinds of people, you know, like there's sort of like little differences of flavor, little differences of like, you know, tweaks here and there, but there's actually a lot of similarities. And so um, it's a huge blow to that part of ourselves that wants to think of ourselves as so special and unique, you know? And in fact, you know, um, a lot of things that um, we think separate us from the rest of humanity make us so especially broken or screwed up are things that just a lot of people share. And so it can be really useful sometimes to just uh, acknowledge the fact that, um, you know, there are a lot of buckets into which these scripts or pictures or storylines fall. I think it doesn't reduce our specialness at all. I think it just shows that the stories that we're living out, those categories aren't necessarily what makes us special. Um, so anyway, um, I'm gonna talk, I mean, I may even talk about this a little bit more in the context of this next email I got, but this is the one I really wanna to speak to. And again, this is huge. It's like, there's no way I'm gonna like, but it's, it seems it's one I want to respond to. So um, I'm gonna preserve the anonymity of this person, but I'm gonna read um, a decent amount of the email. So, um, because I think it it's a wonderful email and I think I wanna, give as much context to the response that I'm gonna give. So this person writes, I'm writing now with a few questions stemming from a struggle. As I think you can tell, I am a compassionate person. I feel tremendous empathy and sympathy for people and other living things when I find out that they are suffering. One example of this might be the panic I experienced when reading David Loy's Equidharma for class last year, a class that this person took with me. Um, I'm so grateful for your kindness, care, and support when I felt so helpless and devastated by the deterioration of ecosystems all over the earth. Equidharma has a chapter um, where it contemplates how we would face extinction, for example. Similarly, I find that I feel extreme pain and sadness when close friends and family are struggling badly. In some cases, I find that I prohibit myself from feeling joy or happiness or even just normalcy because it doesn't seem right to feel joy when someone close to me is experiencing so much pain. Last year, you told me that the Earth's, it, you, you, last year you told me it made sense that the Earth's deterioration and destruction would cause me pain since we are all part of this one 
larger ecosystem of life. Most of the time, it feels fitting to have this sense of connectedness with life on earth. But sometimes I am overwhelmed by my sympathy or empathy for others in a way that feels unsustainable. I've noticed that occasionally, otherwise perfectly normal days are ruined when I'm overcome with grief that comes to me indirectly. I don't want to minimize the sense of connectedness that I feel, and in general, I think that compassion is really important. But I'm wondering whether there is a way to feel this without feeling overcome or inundated with grief. So I think this is a wonderful email, a really important question. Um, and actually like a lot of the questions that I've gotten, it, it's like these questions themselves are indications of the depth and authenticity of the practice of the people who are sending these questions in. And that I think for me is one of the most important and heartening things about them. You don't ask the kind of questions that people have been asking unless you're actually like doing the hard work of practice. Um, so again, it's a huge topic. So I'm just gonna to touch on a few different things that come to mind. And I'm sure it's something we'll return to over and over again. Um, I can relate to the sense of feeling, um, and I think a lot of people can relate to the sense of feeling um, sometimes overly sensitive to, overwhelmed by the suffering of others around you. Um, and I think it varies person to person. I think some people are just naturally much more sensitive in this way and some other people less so, I think. And I, and I, but at the same time, um, I think that practice can um, even sensitize one's nerves more actually like thinking about uh, Sylvia's question about vulnerability, right? That uh, feeling like, you know, when you see a thought as a thought, yes, you feel a bit more openness, but you also feel raw and vulnerable, right? Um, and she was thinking about that from the first person point of view. Um, like I feel vulnerable and raw, but I think actually it goes along with a sense that you can sometimes feel even more sensitive to the suffering of others around you, right? So it's like, it's like goes both ways. I think it's not an accident. Um, the more in tune we are with our own suffering, the more open and in tune we'll be with the suffering of others. I think those things go hand in hand. Um, actually, you know, I think when I was much younger, I had this aspiration to be a writer, a novelist. I actually realized I couldn't because I can't stand looking at other people in the ways that I think novelists kind of have to. <laughs> like, I think you have to study other people. Um, and I just felt like it just, I felt too, like literally aversive to the suffering of others when I would look at them too much, you know. Um, I actually just, I just felt like I can't make this a bit my business, my work of like studying others' suffering. Um, so, um, I also think now, building on what I've just said, as we become more in tuned, attuned to our own suffering, we'll become more in tune or attuned to the suffering of others. 
how we experience and relate to our own suffering will deeply inform the ways in which we respond to the suffering of others. So if we feel our own suffering, but feel it in an aversive way, like, like I feel my pain, I know it, and yet I'm so tight around it. I want it really actually to go away if I'm being honest, you know, that is going to also, I think, color the way that we experience the pain of others. We'll sense that they are in pain. We'll feel an aversion to the pain of others. Um, and I think part of what this all opens to is what I would call, and I'm not, this is not something, you know, original to me, I'm following others' leads and talking about it in this way, but the distinction between empathy and compassion and also the ways in which empathy can go awry. Empathy is obviously an important, crucial thing, something defining of our humanity. But one of the things that I think this person who wrote this email is getting at is the way in which empathy can sometimes be overwhelming and actually almost even debilitating. Um, the phrase that I like that um, I've heard others use is, you can fall into a kind of pathological version of empathy, which people call empathic distress, um, where you feel others' pain, but you feel it as an aversive experience, and it makes you want to do a number of different kinds of things in response to experience you cannot hold. Um, you may want to numb yourself. You may want to run away, or you may want to help the other person you know, in this kind of fix it mode, you know, um, say like, I'm not going to actually like truly be open to their suffering, ask their suffering, but do something about it. You know, I'm going to go and like help them and, and fix the situation. So I become the helper. And that could be one form that these inner scripts take, you know, it's a way of coping with often overwhelming sensations of the suffering around us. Um, so for tonight, I think, because I don't want, you know, I want, don't want to open up too much. I think this is the thing. It's like, it's like, this is huge. I also just don't even want to like try to begin to open up more than I'm going to be able to touch on in a, in a responsible way. So I think I want to hover with this distinction between empathy and compassion. Cause I think just the very fact that they're not the same thing is actually news to a lot of people. That's a different way of thinking about, um, how we relate to the feelings and especially the suffering of others. Because I think, you know, in this email, and this is totally normal and natural, it's not like this, th there's a slide between empathy and compassion, right? Sympathy, empathy, and compassion, as if they are kind of synonyms, um, all describing the same experience. But they're actually, I think, importantly different in ways that can help us practice with them. Joan Halifax, um, oh, actually, I'll just throw this out there. Um, I'm about to, I'm going to read a little excerpt from a book of hers called Standing at the Edge. I recommend it like to everyone. Um, it's, it's one of her most recent books. It might be her most recent, um, but Halifax, Joan Halifax, who runs the um, Upaya Zen Center in Santa Fe, New Mexico, is someone who has like, God, been around a lot of suffering. I mean, um, she's an amazing human being. And, um, and based on, decades of experience of being with people who are dying or different kinds of distress or suffering. 
um, she she kind of collated her experience and produced this book about what she calls edge states. So that's what she means by standing at the edge. Um, and edge states are things like empathy, which are, as I said, and as she totally agrees, crucial, important. So like maybe defining of the best aspects of humanity and yet can go awry also so easily, right? Into forms of distress and become pathological and disabling. Um, and so it's, it requires skill and practice you know, navigating those edge states because you don't want to not have them. It's not a, not a question of like, okay, therefore I'm gonna stay away because it's dangerous. You would lose your humanity by trying to avoid your empathy. And yet, how do you not become um, a debilitated human being, you know, by falling into empathetic distress? The kind that makes people burnt out. It's so common, right? Burnt out, um, you know, as a teacher, it's like shocking how many teachers you hear complaining about their students, right? Um, kind of like, you know, bitching and moaning, like, God, he's like, you know, entitled, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, man, I think you should consider whether or not, like, either like change the way you're doing this career or like get a different career. Um, and I know that the therapists on this call are, um, are very familiar with the importance of navigating this thing, which is how do you listen pe to people all the time who have so much suffering they bring to you and not become overwhelmed by it, right? Um, and um, so, so Halifax in this book, Standing at the Edge, says she doesn't actually believe there is such a thing as compassion fatigue. Um, she thinks that when people use that phrase, compassion fatigue, they're talking about empathetic distress. Compassion, she feels, and I agree with her, is boundless. Um, compassion is something that you experience when you experience a dissolution of your small self and you access this kind of infinite boundless energy of caring for others you know, concern and care for others. Um, what she thinks people are actually talking about is when people empathize with others in ways that overwhelm their own psyches, hearts, and nervous systems. So you become over-identified with the pain of the people you're empathizing with so that the distinction between self and other gets blurred or obliterated. Um, and then it becomes really hard, right? Then it can become, and you start to do whatever you can to cope because it becomes like very threatening. Um, so um, what I wanna, I wanna read just a little bit from this book. I've timed it to the 8.30 PM. Um, this excerpt that I'm reading is gonna post it to the blog. So it's just a sort of scheduled post. And so what I'm about to read is actually there. It's gonna be there after 8.30 on the blog, Williamstown Zen Group, if you wanna see the text. But so the subsect, sub, the heading of this subsection um, is called Empathy is Not Compassion. My friend, Mattia Ricard, 
a Tibetan Buddhist monk who has spent decades practicing in the Himalayas, has collaborated with scientists over the years in experiments that explore the effects of meditation practice on the mind and body. One experiment in particular provides an excellent illustration of empathic distress, as well as of the distinction between empathy and compassion. In 2011, under the guidance of neuroscientist Tanya Singer and her team at the Max Planck Institute in Germany, Mathieu climbed into an fMRI machine and was asked to generate empathy when contemplating the suffering of others. The night before, Mathieu had watched a BBC documentary about orphans in Romania. He was deeply disturbed by their plight. Although the children were fed and washed, they failed to thrive as they received little to no human affection. Mathieu shared that these orphans, for, that for these orphans, quote, the lack of affection had caused severe symptoms of apathy and vulnerability. Many children were rocking back and forth for hours and their health was actually in such a bad state that deaths were regular in this orphanage. Even when being washed, many of these children winced with pain and the slightest hit could lead to a broken leg or arm. While in the fMRI machine, Mathieu mentally immersed himself in the suffering of these children, visualizing them vividly and sensing into their horrendous situation as though he were one of them. Rather than modulate his experience of their suffering, he allowed himself to feel their pain and suffering as deeply as possible. Before long, he felt overwhelmed, drained, and exhausted. After an hour of this intense practice, Mathieu was given the choice to continue with the empathy practice or to switch to compassion meditation. He said, without the slightest hesitation, I agreed to continue the scanning with compassion meditation because I felt so drained after the empathic resonance. He proceeded with compassion meditation, continuing to focus on the suffering of the children. So you can imagine like the loving kindness meditations that we've done. During this phase of the session, however, Matthew intentionally generated feelings of love, kindness, concern, and altruism as he brought to mind the extreme human suffering of these orphans. As the experiment concluded, Matthew described his experience during the compassion meditation as a warm, positive state coupled with a strong desire to be of service to the children. This was in direct contrast to his earlier experience with empathy, actual empathic distress, which is completely draining and debilitating. His brain reflected these remarkable differences as well. Brain scans showed that his experience of empathy had registered in the neural networks associated with pain. These areas have been shown to be associated with both the emotional component, but not the sensory component of experiencing pain oneself and with observing another in pain. Whereas the compassion phase of his experience had registered in different neural networks, those associated with positive emotion, maternal love, and feelings of affiliation. The dramatic difference between empathy and compassion surprised the researchers. Later, Matthew shared with me that during the compassion meditation, he had been flooded with feelings of love and tenderness, and afterward he felt fresh and inspired. He wrote, Subsequently, engaging compassion meditation completely altered my mental landscape. Although the images of suffering children were still as vivid as before, they no longer induced distress. Instead, I felt natural and boundless love for these children and the courage to approach and console them. In addition, the distance between myself and the children had completely disappeared. When Matthew experienced 
what, what Matya experienced was similar to my experience with Dolma, a story she tells earlier in the book. The Nepali girl who had suffered from terrible burns and Joan Halifax describes feeling empathic distress and overwhelm when experiencing Dolma get debridement treatment for her burn wounds. At that time, I was unaware of the neurological difference between empathy and compassion, but I knew I had to shift out of my identification with the child's agony and into a state where I was grounded and full of gratitude for those who were saving her life. After I made that shift, like Matthew, I felt revitalized by the compassion that had arisen in me. Tanya, Matthew, and their colleagues report that this experiment was a turning point in their research on compassion. Not only had they gathered compelling evidence of the neurological distinction, neurobiological distinction between empathy and compassion, Matthew had also confirmed a significant difference in a subjective experience of these states. So, so I think just putting that distinction on the table is I think the first thing, the biggest, most important thing that I want to do tonight. And I think um, having put it on the table, I think that opens up an interesting terrain for each of us in our practice. Because then if we don't think of empathy as synonymous with compassion, we can start to sense when does my identification with the other and the other suffering start to feel overwhelming in the ways that might lead to this kind of distress, right? And what kinds of responses does it produce in me? I mean, I think clearly one thing that's coming through in this email is this person is feeling urged to withdraw or to protect him or herself, right? From that pain, which is totally natural, right? Um, and so there is a sense of like, this is too much. I need to take care of myself by pulling away. Compassion is not simply, it's like, it's sort of in a weird way, it like folds some empathic response in, but it's something slightly different. It's geared towards caring for and being of service to the other. So it's a different way of relating to the other's suffering that's not focused on feeling simply the other's pain, but how can I relate to the other's pain, but in a spirit of wanting to do something for that person, right? Um, so one way of thinking about this concretely in a way that I think we can use in a daily practice is this, and this is where I, this is the last thing I'm gonna touch on tonight. When people, people have a number of times asked me, like, how can you like talk to all the students that you do at Williams? It must be overwhelming, right? Um, and there, and a, a phrase that people often use is the emotional labor, right, of being there for the students that I talk to. Like, it must be exhausting, you know. Um, and, and I, the response I often have is, is actually, it's not. Um, but I think it's not because some time ago, I learned some ways of how to be with and listen to the suffering of others that allows me to avoid the kind of empathic distress that Halifax was talking about. Um, and I think one key thing is 
I no longer feel that my job is to fix people. You know, it's not, it's not even exactly to help people, except maybe in a broadly understood sense. It's simply to be present with people, to be there with and for them. So I can listen to sometimes, you know, rather like intense stories of personal suffering um, and not feel this sense that I need to take their suffering in, identify with it and do something about it, like, like um, fix them. Presence and just being open, listening deeply and openly and compassionately to the whatever someone brings seems to be actually, honestly, the most helpful thing for the people I speak to um, and is not draining in the ways that like many years ago, these conversations would be if I felt like a pressure to be the person who can help, who can do something for the other. Um, so, um, so deep listening is actually a practice that can be really helpful for sort of cultivating this way of being with others where you aren't always trying to like fix the other person's pain for them. You know, one thing that Halifax says is when you see yourself as helping another person, you're seeing that person as weak. When you see yourself as fixing another person, you're seeing that person as broken. Rather, we should see ourselves as simply being in the service of other humans. You know, um, we aren't, it's not, it's like, it's actually like by thinking that we can help or fix other people, we're already producing very strange dynamics between self and other. Um, so deep listening is a powerful practice that's really simple to do, but you have to find a willing partner. Um, just ask someone to talk to you for seven minutes straight about something that is on their mind, weighing on them, that feels like it matters to them. Just talk for seven minutes. And your job as a deep listener is just to listen. Um, just listen openly. You can nod and you can say, hmm, you know, like, you know, you get those, but no questions and no feedback. Just listen. It will be hard for the other person to speak for that long. And around the five or six minute point, something will shift in that person where they start to start, start to have to even dig more deeply, you know, and that's actually good for the person. The deep, deep speaking is actually a very powerful practice. And you guys should switch places when you do this. It's actually each of you should experience it. But from the listener's point of view, what is fascinating is that if you stay mindful of yourself, your breath, your body, as you listen to the other, you'll start to feel all the ways in which you have all these impulses to like respond, you know, to, to, to say something that's, that's helpful or to do something or, you know, and all the ways in which it's hard just to stay open to the other. Um, this is something you don't actually, you can do, and then you can, once you practice with someone, you can just do this 
in ordinary life. You know, there can be opportunities. You don't have to be for seven minutes, like, but just when people speak to you, just listen, just listen. Um, and one of the things that happens as you attend to yourself it, um, in this way, when you listen deeply is you also stay grounded in your own physical experience. And so the interesting thing is like, you are a better service to the other when you don't let the distinction between self and other become obliterated, right? When you actually acknowledge that I am here, I am me having this particular experience of this moment and that person is over there. And though I can be open to their suffering and attend to it, we are different. And that's actually one of the reasons why I love this when I said last week, and I showed, talked about this bowing, not two, right? It's like not two, it doesn't mean we're one, it just means we're not two right? We are distinct. We not, may not be separate. But we are not fused. Fusion into one is not what this practice is about. We need to respect both our diversity, our differences, that you are you and I am me. And yet that we are not nearly as separate as we feel ourselves to be. That In that way, you can feel and be open to the suffering of others without becoming overwhelmed, invaded by their suffering in a way, you know, so that you identify with the suffering of another. Staying grounded in your own breath and your body as you attend to the suffering of others is one concrete way to make sure that you do not lose touch with yourself. And when you feel like you do are losing touch, it's becoming overwhelming, then that it may be a moment where pulling back is really important. So, I think the, the intuition that this email writer had of like, this feels unsustainable, I think it's a really healthy one. Sometimes what you need is to pull back, reestablish that boundary, a sense of self, so that you can be a better service to others. Um, so, but I think it's also key that being open to the suffering of others doesn't necessarily have to lead to this kind of distress. And that's why I love this thing between empathy and compassion. There is a way of being open that is fueled by compassion, that feels more energetic, more giving, generous, rather than just like, I'm just taking on and being drowned in the pain of the other. Um, okay, so that was a lot. Um, and still at the same time, just touching on this huge topic, but are there any thoughts? And I know that actually there are people, a lot of people in this call who have as much personal experience, I mean, even more than I do with the actual nitty gritty of this. So please feel free to share your own wisdom or questions too. And we maybe we can even just talk about this more next time. This feels like a big enough topic, it's worth circling back to you right away. Yes, definitely circling back would be great. That's a wonderful idea. Thank you. Will do, Samantha. So um, 
the, the words I read tonight from the book or will be on the on the website, the blog. The book I recommend. The whole there's um empathy is like, you know, one fifth of the book is one of the like I think five major edge states that she talks about. It's really, really interesting discussion, um, which will echo and reinforce um, some of what I just barely touched on tonight. And she gives concrete practices for what to do when you fall into distress. Cause I think she understands it's natural. It's like, you know, it's, it's something that um, will happen to someone who doesn't shut him or herself off from others. And so the question is like, how do you pull yourself back? Um, but I think that, you know, you know, one thing I worry about a lot when I see how like the Williams the students at Williams relate to each other suffering is I feel like I got the sense that a lot of, of students at Williams felt like the thing they should do for their friends was basically to feel their pain. You know, like if you're a good friend, you take the other's pain on. Right. Um, and, and I just felt like this is not sustainable, not a healthy way. It's not even helpful. You know, it's just like expands the scope of the suffering that everyone is feeling. Um, so I think that one thing is just such an important takeaway. It's like, it's not about taking on the pain of others. Um, and it's definitely not about fixing them, you know? So and if you don't feel the urge to help or fix, already that can change, you know, things. It's like a lot of the, the, the um, panic that comes from feeling other people's pain is like this feeling like you should be able to do something if you love them, if you're a friend, but it's not your place, it's not our place to fix others, you know? Um, instead, how can we be a service to others as they try to help themselves, you know? Okay, so, um, Let's, um, if you don't mind, can we sit for one minute before we sign off? Because that's kind of heavy and, um, and it would be nice. Okay, great, thank you. But of course, please go if you need to. Okay, just one minute. Thank you all. I will be hang, I'm happy to hang out on the call if anyone has any questions, because I know it was, depending on where you're at in your life, potentially heavy. So I'm here if anyone wants to hang and chat a bit. But otherwise, I wish you all well and have a wonderful week. See you next week. Bernie. Good night. Thanks, Bernie.